0: So please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that passage of Scripture on page 71 of the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the word of the Lord. So I was trying to sing too loud. I'm going hoarse
1: from trying to sing. Hopefully that will clear up. Little bit. <clears throat> well, good morning again and happy Father's Day to you fathers out there. Um, you know, one of the one of the greatest plights on our land is the lack of true fathering. And um, that's a that's a fruit that is derived from not being in relationship with the one true Heavenly Father in our Lord Jesus Christ, that automatically leads to not being a good father to your children. But uh, we have an opportunity in our day as believers in Christ and those who've been redeemed by him to uh, put on display the glory, that, or at least the reality, of what he intended fatherhood to be. And so, fathers, I'm very thankful for each one of you, and I hope that you'll take Take up that charge to be a godly man and wash your wives with the water of the word more faithfully and diligently, that you will raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, not not exasperating them, but bringing them up in the truth and the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Be encouraged, men. That's your calling. If you do nothing else in this life, but be faithful to your wife and washing her with the truth and care for your children the way God wants you to, you will be a faithful and godly man that will shine out with glory on the day of Jesus Christ. So take heart, men, and be men in this day. Now, as we enter back into the Gospel of John, I'm bringing you all with me into the Trinitarian Torture chamber. Just as some of you tasted last week, uh, we are discussing some of the deeper issues relating to the doctrine of the Trinity. The reason why we're doing that is because the Gospel of John brings this issue up before us and slaps us in the face with it. And in order to be faithful to the Word of God, and, and I, as far as I can uh do with a good conscience and a clean conscience in order to be a faithful pastor to you all, I can't ignore this one little word that we've been looking at in John 1.14 and 118, our favorite Greek word now, right? Some of you know how to say it. What is that word? Monogonase. That's right. That Jesus Christ is the monogonase of the Father. He is the only begotten from the Father. He is the monogamous theos. He is the only begotten God. Now, how do we understand what that means? That's really what we're looking at in last week's message. And hopefully, by God's grace, I intend to finish in this week's message. Now, before we pray and we ask for God's grace and help to be with us as we try to tackle such a a topic... um, let me begin this morning just by fully acknowledging a couple things. Um, <clears throat> I recognize that sitting under sermons like these are challenging. Okay? I'm not ignorant up here as I'm preaching a sermon like I preached last week, that it's really stretching our minds and it's, really, it's, it's bringing us further along in this process of thinking through how God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures, I recognize that that's, that can be trying. I'm not afraid to test you like that. I'm not afraid to stretch you like that. I hope that you're okay being stretched because uh, that's how we grow, right? Yeah. Stronger through stretching. I know that it's challenging and And I also am very aware that I am pressing all of us up, right up to the edge of the envelope on this issue of the sonship of Christ. We are really coming to the very end of all that we can rightly consider and discuss concerning the nature of Christ's sonship. What does it mean when we say that Jesus is the Son of God? That's what we're trying to get at. What does the Bible mean when it describes Him as The Father's only begotten. This is the major issue between Christianity and Islam. If you don't understand this issue, you're going to have no ability to witness to your Muslim neighbor. This is the issue between Christianity and Jehovah Witness and Mormon theology. And if you don't understand this issue, at least understand it the way that the scriptures has revealed it to us, then you are not going to be able to be a faithful witness to your Jehovah witness when he comes knocking on the door. You're not going to be able to look at him and say, you claim to be Jehovah's witness, but I actually am Jehovah's witness and let me tell you about him. You're not going to be able to do that if you don't understand the nature of Christ's sonship. Now, what that means is that you're going to have to stretch your minds and try to bend them a little bit. Let them flex under the weight of such a glorious topic. You're going to have to do that if you're going to be prepared and ready to engage this world with the truth of Christ. And the only way that I know how to prepare you to do that is to force you, whenever I have you captive as a captive audience, is to force you... (laughs) into this issue. I know that this is a hard issue. It's, it's not fun reading 500 pages of systematic theology and articles and books discussing this very topic. It's not hard weeding through all the issues. But I do that so that I can help you learn and grow in your understanding of who Christ is so that you'll be a more faithful witness for him. So I recognize that I'm pushing us to grapple with something that is right on the line of what is possible for our finite minds to comprehend. I get that. But I want us to remember what we're trying to do here. We're definitely entering into high and in many ways incomprehensible areas of theology, the study of God. But we're not entering into speculation or mere theory whenever we discuss this topic. We're simply looking at a particular word that the Holy Spirit has chosen to describe the Son of God to us. We are looking at this word "monogenes," and we are asking honestly, God, what does this word mean? We understand how that word was used in Greek culture. We understand that it was used in reference to an only begotten son, to a father or a mother. We, we get that, but what in the world does that mean when we're talking about the second person of the Trinity? What does it mean that he was begotten of the Father? That's what we're trying to get at here. We're taking this word and we're trying our best to understand what it means. And I just want you to keep that in mind as we are wrestling through this topic. Okay? Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's pray in light of that and ask the Lord to give us grace to understand what he's revealed in his word. Father, we, we... we are very aware of how limited our minds are, Lord, of how dull we are, of how deadened our hearts are by the world around us and the culture in which we live in, or the the darkness and the evil that is rampant and on the rise all around us. We are very aware of the effect that that has on us. Lord, we step into this room gathering with the people of God, quote unquote, calling upon you through our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, if we're honest, we do so with distracted minds and divided hearts. God, I, I know that we are we're not only distracted by the things of the world. Lord, there are so many weighty issues that the people in this room are walking through right now. So many ways that this fallen world is touching us personally and powerfully. And uh, Lord, really testing our faith in you. God, I pray that you would give us grace here together as one people gathered in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us grace to lift our eyes unto the hills and see freshly from where our help comes. Or to see with, with a new awareness, a new spiritual awareness, that our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Lord, help us penetrate into this eternally significant issue of the sonship of Christ. Lord, help us see the glory, not only of that sonship as it's revealed to us in the scriptures, but help us see the glory of what it means for us as those who hold fast to Christ in faith. God, I pray that you would, by your grace and according to your faithfulness, that you would use your word to minister to each one of our hearts this morning and grow us in the faithful, or the, the faith that we have in your beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, as we get back into this, let's start with just a general summary or a recap of what we looked at last week. Last week, we, in order to, we said that in order to understand what it means to call Jesus the Son of God, we have to have something of a basic understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, right? And we walked through uh, three pillars for a faithful confession of the Trinity, three easy steps to confessing the Trinity. They were so easy that you're probably all ready to spout them out at me right now. Right? Yeah, there was some silence on that. I'm going to assume that that's a no. Well, the three easy steps to confess in the Trinity. Number one, the Bible teaches absolute monotheism. That there is absolutely only one God. That second pillar from last week that we looked at is The reality that though there is only one God, the Bible identifies three persons as that one God. We looked at some of those scripture passages last week. You can go listen to that if you want to be reminded or refreshed of what we covered. And then there was the third pillar, that these three persons are distinct from one another. So you have absolute monotheism, there's only one God. You have three persons identified as that God, and then you have the reality that those three persons are distinct. This is a basic confession of the biblical teaching on the Trinitarian nature of God. And if you get those three pillars down, you will be able to walk through any kind of challenge that Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses will will posit your way, throw at you. Now, as we said last week, it's specifically in regard to that third pillar that pillar of distinction between the persons, that's where our word monogamous becomes so important. That's where it becomes so important to understand what this word is talking about in relation to Jesus Christ. As we saw in the Nicene Creed, historically the church has pointed to this specific word to be definitional of what it means to believe and confess that Jesus is the Son of God. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, it means to confess Him as the only begotten Son of God. right? The, the monogamous of God. That's the word there. To have faith in Jesus as the Son of God means that we are to confess Him as the only begotten from the Father. And as the Nicene Creed says, this happened from before all ages. That is, it wasn't an act in time. It wasn't an act that took place at some point, even in eternity. This is simply the way that God has eternally existed. He has eternally existed in Father, Son, Spirit. This is how the Son has existed from all eternity, as the begotten from the Father. Now, they explain their understanding of what it means to be the only begotten with three little phrases here. Massive phrases, but short phrases. For the Son of God to be, or for the Son to be begotten of the Father means that the Son is God from God. He is light from light. He is very God from very God. And I mentioned last week that 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 word there, from, Uh, In Greek, that speaks of out of. That has a sense of coming out of something. When something is from another thing, it has a sense of coming out of that other thing. This is the word ek. So he is God out of God. He is very God out of very God. Light out of light. And then they affirm that begottenness is not talking about him being made. He is begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, This is how the church throughout the centuries has understood what the Bible teaches about the son's eternal relationship to the father. That he's not merely a unique one who has come from the father. He is not merely the only one who has come from the father, but he is the son, the only son, who has been begotten of the father. Now, you guys ready to stretch a bit? Physically or mentally? Both. (laughs) All right. This doctrine of the eternal begetting of the Son, the church came to call eternal generation. Eternal generation. The teaching of eternal generation is that within the eternal being of God, there is this eternal act whereby the person of the Son is generated out of the person of the Father. You guys follow me in that? That He is God from God, meaning He is God generated out of God. He is light from light, meaning He is light generated out of light. Very God from very God. That is what it means for the Son to be begotten of the Father from before all ages. It means that He was generated or He was brought forth out of the being of the Father from all eternity. Amen? amen. Some of you. We, yeah, amen. We can all rejoice in this. Now, it's really important to understand about this confession, the Nicene Creed, and this confession of eternal generation, it's really important to understand that the church did not just make this up because they were too influenced by Greek philosophy or because this was just their best guess at what this relationship between father and son is. That's not how the church came to understand the doctrine of eternal generation. This was produced by the church looking at the language that is used in Scripture and saying, God, how have you described your Son to us and how do we understand that and then put it into words to tell others about it? This this came about not out of mere speculation. This came out of the church looking at the Scriptures and asking, what do the Scriptures say? It's really important to get that because people will charge faithful Orthodox Christians with adopting too much Greek speculation and Greek philosophy in their understanding of the Trinity. That is far from the case. They simply looked at the Scriptures and saw what the Scriptures described in relation to the Son in the development of this doctrine. They were trying to understand how Jesus could be described as the eternal God, the I Am of John 8. And yet at the same time, be called the Father's only begotten. John 1.14, 118, 3.16, 3.18, 1 John 4.9. How could he be both? How can he be begotten and eternal? Doesn't that imply that the Son at some point did not exist? If we're to say that he was begotten from the Father. Does that not mean that the Son at some point was created by the Father? Is that what we're saying when we're saying that the Son was generated out of the Father? Well, that's what heretics like a man named Arius were piecing together with the language of Scripture. That there was a time when the Son was not. There was a time when the Son had not yet been generated from the Father. And the church had to answer the questions of Arius. Because if you go down this road of saying that the Son was generated out of the Father in a way that was creaturely, in a way that was temporal, in a way that happened in time, in a way that led to the Son being less than the Father, you lose the entirety of the gospel. At that point, the redeeming work of Christ means nothing. He's just a creature that was put to death in place of other creatures. Well, how long does that last? We'll get into that in a minute. But if he's only a creature worth 10,000 years, then you only have a redemption in Christ that's worth 10,000 years. He must be eternal or else everything he did on behalf of sinners is worthless in vain. Well, after wrestling through these questions that Arius and others were bringing up and looking at all the ways that the Bible speaks about Jesus as God and as the Son of God, The church concluded that the scriptures must be affirming an eternal generation of the Son of God. That is, that the Son was generated from the Father. Yes, but that generation must be something that has been happening for all eternity, it is an eternal act. Otherwise, there's no way to affirm that he is the only begotten from the Father and at the same time affirm that he, as the word, was fully and completely and utterly God. Now, we want to ask, what exactly does it mean and what are we saying when we say that the Son was eternally generated from the Father? Well, there are three implications that arise from that that I think might give us some help. Three implications of affirming eternal generation of the Son. You guys ready? Number one. I do have these on a slide, I believe, because I thought it would be helpful for you. Number one, calling the Son the only begotten from the Father implies exactly what it sounds like it implies. That somehow the person of the Son is derived out of the person of the Father. Perhaps this is more than an implication because we can see it clearly stated in John 1:14 where the son is described as the only begotten from the father. Now, when we read that, we need to let the language speak for itself. We don't need to try to reinterpret what this is saying in order to fit it within our finite minds. We simply need to let the language of Scripture stand on its own and correct our misunderstandings of Jesus and the nature of God. As we saw last week, the word monogamous, when speaking of a relationship between two persons, is dealing with an only begotten child, one who is an only son or an only daughter born to a father or mother. Therefore, when verse 14 describes this eternal relationship between the person of the father and the person of the son, it is describing that relationship as something that is analogous to the begetting of a son by an earthly human father. You guys follow me there? It's okay if you shake your head no. I just want to make sure that we're being as clear as we can be with this. In verse 14, using this word monogenes in relation to the son and the father is pointing to the relationship between a human father and a human son and saying there's an analogy there that helps us understand the relationship between father and son. It is not a perfect one-to-one correlation. It's not exactly the same. When we're talking about human generation of a son we're talking about something that is temporal, something that happens in time. When we're talking about the generation of the Son of God from the Father of God, we are talking about something that is eternal. When we're talking about human generation, we're talking about something that is creaturely. When we talk about divine generation, we're talking about something that is of God. It is not a, it's not identical to human father, a human father begetting a human son, but it is something that is similar and analogous to it. And so using monogamous in reference to the son affirms that in some way, the father is the begetter of the son, and in some way, the son is the begotten of the father. Okay? So in light of that, what we have to affirm about the son, if we're going to be faithful to Scripture is we have to affirm that in some way, verse 14 teaches us that the eternal word is derived from the Father. Now, I was shocked the first time I read that. I don't know if that shocks you, but that was shocking to me. That thought that the Son was derived from the Father. In fact, I remember the first time I read the statement by my seminary professor, Dr. Sam Waldron, I thought, man, I'm done with seminary. <laughs> I'm stepping out of this seminary. I'm going to find a more faithful institution. But he really challenged my thinking on this. And here's what he said. Begottenness means that the person of the Son is somehow derived from the person of the Father and is dependent upon it. Are you, what are you saying in that? Are you saying that the Son is not eternally God in and of himself? Are you saying that he doesn't have self-existence? If he doesn't have self-existence, he's not God. Right? So what are you saying to say that he is derived from the Father and dependent on the Father? He goes on to say that each person in the Trinity, Father, or the uh, Son and Spirit is the one he's referring to, those whom he's referring to, each person is eternal But the persons, oh, well, here it is. Each person is eternal, but the persons of the Son and Spirit originate from the Father. That's what eternal generation is affirming, that the Son is eternally derived from the Father. Now, again, because our tendency is to think of things like this as something that happened in time or as something that happened at some point in God's existence we must continually emphasize that this begetting of the Son was an eternal act that belongs to the nature of God. It is not something that God did. It's not something that He became. It's something that He always has been. Remember the words of Berkhoff. This is a timeless act. It's an act of an eternal present, an act that is always continuing and yet ever completed. Amazing statement. Bavink, let me throw him in the ring. Tag team Bavink on you. Herman Bavink, he wrote in his Reformed Dogmatics, this generating of the sun is not something that was completed and finished at some point in eternity, but an eternal, unchanging act of God, at once, always complete, and eternally ongoing. At once, always complete, and eternally ongoing. Amazing concept to try and wrap your brain around. I can't do it, but I just throw these statements out to you. Maybe you can go home and meditate on them and get more clarity than I have. So the first implication from this that we need to take away is the fact that the son in some way is derived from the father. Second implication, and probably the most important one for us to grasp, is that it is the person of the son That is begotten from the Father, not the divine nature of the Son. It is the person of the Son that is begotten of the Father, not the divine nature of the Son. This implication flows necessarily out of what it means to call Jesus God. If it was his divine nature, if it was his nature as God that was generated by the Father, then we would have some serious problems in regard to our faith in him. Because, first of all, that would mean that the Son's divine nature would be less than the divine nature of the Father. Because it would be a greater divine nature birthing a lesser divine nature. It would mean that the Son's divine nature is not immutable and is not unchanging. And that would disqualify him from being God. Because he was in His divine essence, created. He was generated by God. Third, it would mean that the Son is not self-existent, as I mentioned earlier, and that would disqualify Him as God. So we know that we're not talking about His divine nature when we're talking about the Son being generated. This is a great mystery, and I will not pretend to be able to understand and fully explain it. But from the testimony of Scripture it must be the person of the Son that is generated and not the divine essence of the Son. How then can the person of the Son, though, if that's true, we've got to ask, how then can the person of the Son possess the fullness of divine nature? If the person of the Son is generated by the Father, how then can he possess the fullness of divine nature? Well, I told you this was going to stretch you today. We're going to get to some points of application in just a minute, but hang with me, all right? Hang with me. When the Father generated the person of the Son, the divine essence was not generated with him. The divine essence was communicated to him. Remember, this is an eternal act. It's not anything that happened at one point. This is the way God has always existed. In the Father's eternal act of begetting the Son, He does not generate the Son as some new divine being. Nor does He carve up the nature of God and give a peace to the Son so that the Son can all of a sudden be called God in a way that's similar to Him. That's not the divine nature of the Son. The divine nature of the Son is the fullness of divine nature imparted to the Son by the Father. It's the full, entire, complete, eternal, holy, righteous, just, loving, compassionate, gracious, never-changing divine nature of God, fully communicated to the Son through the person of the Father. Yeah, amen. Amen, because we have no hope of salvation outside of that. This is how the Son can be both described as the only begotten and at the same time be described as the, etern- the eternally existent Yahweh, the I Am. Because it was not a separate divine essence that the Son took to Himself when He was generated. He didn't become God. It was the same eternal essence of God being communicated to him or imparted to him from the Father. Now, you might be saying, "Well, that sounds good. You might not be saying that, and that's fine. But where do we actually see this kind of concept related to us in Scripture? This seems very speculative. It seems very theoretical. It seems way too high-minded for us to even be talking about, so why are you preaching about it? Well, I'm preaching about it now because I know that John 5.26 is coming soonish, <laughs> And we're going to have to deal with what John 5.26 says in relation to the Son. I know this is stretching you, but you've got to understand the importance of it. Apart from eternal generation and everything I've just walked through, we have no No way to understand what John 5.26 is saying other than to say, maybe the Son is not... I don't know. We can't even say that. Maybe the Son's not God. No, we can't say that. Look at what this verse says. This is the classic text that is fleshing out for us this doctrine of eternal generation. Focus on three phrases with me. First of all, notice right in the middle... Speaking of the father, it says that the father gave something to the son. What is it that the father gave to the son? In other words, the father is the source of something that the son is receiving. The father gave the son something. What is it, though? Well, it says there that the father gave to the son, see that last phrase, to have life in himself. Now, not just to be alive. It's not that the Father gave to the Son to be a living being, the way that you and I are given life from God. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the Son, the Father giving the Son the ability, or the right, or however you want to phrase this. I'm really hesitant hesitant to even use that language. But it's the Father giving to the Son Life in himself, to have life in himself. In other words, that's talking about self existent life. If you have life in and of yourself, you are saying that you self exist, or you are self existent. Theologians call this divine aseity. It is the self existence of God, and it is an attribute of God that is incommunicable, meaning, It's an attribute of God that cannot be shared with anyone that is not God. He is eternally self-existent and unchanging. And here we find this amazing statement that the Father is communicating this incommunicable attribute to the Son. The Father gave to the Son to have life in Himself. The Father gave to the Son to be self-existent. How do we understand a verse like that? And you couple that together with this other phrase that's right at the beginning. It says there that it was just as the Father has life in Himself that the Father gave to the Son to have life in Himself. How can that be? How can it be that the Father, in the same way that the Father has life in Himself, this eternal self existence, the same way that is possessed by the Father, He gives it to the Son? And it's not a lesser life that the Son has, it is exactly the same divine self existence. How's that possible? How is it possible for the divine attribute of self-existence to be granted or to be given to the Son in full measure in such a way that the Son is yet equal to the Father in that self-existence? That is a mystery we cannot comprehend. That leads to our third implication. Because we are talking about the Son's eternal relationship with the Father, we have to recognize that this is describing something that is incomprehensible to us. God the Son is the only begotten from the Father simply because He is the one who is eternally generated from the Father, but our finite minds will never be able to comprehend the full reality of this relationship. Louis Burkhoff. I'm quoting a lot of guys. I want you guys to be helped by others besides me. Through this, through these sermons. Louis Burkhoff wrote in his systematic theology on page 63: it is especially when we reflect on the relations of the three persons, that the divine essence, the three persons to the divine essence, that all analogies fail us, and we become deeply conscious of the fact that the Trinity is a mystery far beyond our comprehension. Is there an amen to that statement? Amen. amen. My goodness. This is far beyond our ability to fully grasp. He says there that this is the incomprehensible glory of the Godhead. This eternal relation, eternal eternal relations between the persons of the Trinity. There's There's an eternal veil there that we will not ever be able to penetrate as God's creatures. Now we might ask in response to that, If this truth is something that is incomprehensible to us, which, by the way, can I just throw a side note here? This really does prove the divine authority that is behind the Word of God, that God is the source of what is revealed to us in the Scriptures because humanity, A, would never be able to comprehend something like this. It would never be able to develop something like this. And B, they definitely wouldn't write it down in order to pass it on to others without solving all the problems or at least attempting to. Just a testimony to the divine, that that God is the source of this book we call the Bible. But we might ask, if this is something that is incomprehensible to us, if it's something that we cannot understand, then why has God made this fact known to us in the Bible? If it's something we can't understand, then what is God's purpose in writing about it in the scriptures? Well, the answer, I'm sure there are many answers to this, but the answer I'm going to give is very simple. Well, let me give one. I'll give two answers. Here we go. Number one is to humble us. To bring us in submission to God as he is in himself and not God as we want him to be. It's, it's, in, our humble, it's, it's in our humble bowing before the truth of God that we find our right place before him. Not as the judges of God. Not as those who examine God and see if he fits up to our determination of what God should be. God has revealed to us incomprehensible mysteries concerning himself so that we would be humbled and we would come before him with humility. That's one answer. But the second one I want to focus a little bit on Why would God reveal to us something so incomprehensible in the word? Well, I believe that God's intention in revealing these things to us is not to give us a full explanation of the mystery of the Trinity or to explain how it all works, but rather his intention is to bring us closer to understanding the magnitude of what has happened when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The reason God reveals these incomprehensible realities to us, things that we are baffled by and cannot comprehend, the reason He brings these up in the Word is so that we would be in awe of the incarnation of the Son of God and what it means for us. And that's what I want to end on today. Six reasons why it is important to understand and confess Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. Six reasons. Some will be shorter than others. Number one. Why is it important to recognize this and confess it? Well, number one, because this is the word that God has chosen to reveal to us, the glory of His Son. Therefore, this word reveals to us how God wants us to think about His Son. John 1.18, he is the only begotten God. That is how the Father wants us to think about God the Son, as the only begotten God. So the first reason why this is important is simply because this is what God has revealed to us about about Jesus. And if we're going to be faithful to God's revelation, we need to acknowledge and accept this truth. Number two, understanding Christ as the only begotten guards us from idolatry. Guards us from idolatry. It's the Father's will for all of us to... Uh, excuse me. It's the Father's will for all of our worship to be offered to Him through the Son. If the Son is anything less than what the Father is in His divine nature, then what we are doing is committing an act of idolatry. John 5, through 23, it says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. (laughs) He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, apart from understanding as much as we can the precise nature of the Son's divinity in relation to the Father, as it is revealed in this word monogamous, you guys follow that, apart from having some kind of understanding of that that is biblically accurate, when we go to honor the Son or our conception of the Son as we honor the Father, if He is anything less than what the Father is in His essence, we're idolaters and we're sinning against the Lord. In other words, if you, when you worship the Son, if you worship Him as something lesser than perfect and full and eternal God, as something lesser than being on the same level as the Father... <laughs> then you dishonor him and you are worshiping an idol and you are even dishonoring the father. It's only possible to worship and honor the father as God when we worship and honor his son as God, in other words. Because the son shares equally and fully in his divine essence, in the divine essence of the father, and therefore is there is but one God to be worshiped. So that's number two, why it's important. Number one, because that's the word that God uses, the Father uses to describe His Son to us, and that's how He wants us to understand Him. Number two, apart from understanding this word biblically, we're guilty of committing idolatry in our worship of Jesus. Number three, a full-hearted confession of Jesus as God the Son provides us with a robust assurance that we are in fellowship with the Father. Just read this verse in passing. I won't comment on it. 1 John 2, 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Just one little comment. To confess the Son in this text is to confess Him as He is revealed by God to us in the Word. All kinds of people confess Jesus as the Son of God, but they don't mean it the way that the Bible means it. If you're going to confess Jesus as the Son of God in a way that ensures your fellowship with the Father, or at least testifies to your fellowship with the Father, you have to confess Him as the Son according to the Scriptures. All right. Number four. And we're going to camp on this one for just a minute. Number four. Understanding Jesus as the only begotten Son helps us understand how the fullness of God's blessing can be granted to us. Understanding Jesus as God's only begotten Son helps us understand how the fullness of God's blessings can be granted to us. Ephesians 1.3, it says that in Christ, we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, very clearly in this verse... The Father blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because He gives us the one who is Himself the fullness of all heavenly blessing. He gives us the only begotten Son. It's in Christ that we have all these blessings of heaven. What are some of these blessings? Well, In John 3.16, it is because Christ is the only begotten Son of God that we can have eternal life in Him. The only reason we can have eternal life through Christ is because He is the only begotten Son of God. See, the promise of the gospel is eternal life. In fact, that is the greatest blessing that Christ came to give the world. He came to give sinners eternal life in fellowship with God in glory. But the only reason we can receive the blessing of eternal life in Jesus Christ is because He, as the only begotten Son of the Father, possesses eternal life to give. You cannot have eternal life in Jesus Christ if He does not have eternal life to give you. It is Jesus as the only begotten from the Father that offers eternal life to us. And it is only faith in Jesus Christ as the begotten of the Father that receives eternal life from His hand. He will not bless a faith that looks to Him for anything less than that. You either look to Him as the fullness of your hope and guarantee for life eternal with God, or you receive nothing from Him but judgment. You must honor Him as the Lord and giver of life if you would receive life from Him. And believers in this room, you know and you can testify the joy and the glory and the power of life that comes through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's what made us new in Him. It's what we taste when we're in fellowship with the Spirit of God. And it's what we're looking forward to when we get to glory of fullness and envelopment in life life itself with God. You know the joy of that and you know the power of that. That only comes to us through the name of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the eternally living Son of God. Which leads to a second blessing. The blessing of sonship or being adopted as God's children. The reason John 1.12 can say that we have been given authority to become children of God through faith in Christ is because Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God who united Himself to us. The only reason you and I can claim the blessing of being adopted as a child of God is because the everlasting Son of God united Himself to us. Jesus came in the flesh... He emptied Himself, as it says in Philippians 2. He set set aside His glory. He set aside His rights as Creator and as the One who ought to be highly esteemed. And He became a servant by becoming like man. He took to Himself human flesh and He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that He could bring sinners up with Him out of death and into the fullness of the blessing of sonship. The Son of God stepped down from heaven into our darkness and into our death so that He could bring us out of death and make us children of God. You are only a child of God because Jesus is the eternal Son of God and He came to confer that blessing on you. That leads to a third blessing. The blessing of everlasting love from the Father. It says in John 17, 23, that the Father has loved all of Christ's disciples. Notice the language here. The Father loves all of Christ's disciples to the same degree that He loves the Son. John 17, 23. So that the world may know that you sent me. And loved them even as you have loved me. How is it possible to make such a statement? How is it even conceivable to say that the begotten Son of God, the object of His eternal love and pleasure, that the Father loves us the same way He loves Him? That is not possible apart from the Son. Uniting himself to us as a man in order to give us that blessing. It's only because the perfect object of the Father's love became one of us. That the holy and eternal love of the Father could be shared with us. He joined himself to us so that he might save us and bring us into the eternal love he shares with the Father. Number four, the blessing of everlasting glory. The blessing of everlasting glory. John seventeen twenty-two, where Jesus gives a fuller revelation of the fullness of blessing that he is the only begotten from the Father came to give us. He says, the glory, talking to the Father in prayer, speaking, communing with the Father in prayer. He says, the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Notice that first phrase. The glory that the Father has given the Son, the Son has given to his disciples. What is that glory that Jesus is talking about? We'll flip back to John 17, verse 5, where Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What kind of glory is Jesus talking about giving to his disciples in verse 22? He's talking about giving them the eternal glory that belongs to him as the Son of the Father. The glory that he had with the Father before the world was, Jesus stepped down into this world in order to give us his glory with the Father. There's a line of divide there between the eternal and the creature. But as full as we can be caught up in glory as creatures, we will be one day because of the only begotten Son of God. All right. You guys still with me? Okay. Yeah. You don't have to lie in service. You know, can I just say this to that point before we move to the next one? All of your hope and your confident expectation of being with God for eternity and glory rest upon this reality you have nothing you have nothing to offer God that warrants him giving you his glory not even not even I'm not even talking about as a sinner you have nothing to offer God that's true we have nothing to offer God as sinners in order to gain his glory and, and 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 enjoy it for eternity but I'm talking merely about creatures. As creatures, you and I have nothing to offer back to God that would require Him or even be worthy of pleading with Him in order to give us a share in His glory. He shares His glory with no one. Isn't that what Isaiah says? And yet. We have the only begotten Son of God stepping down, uniting Himself with us, so that the fullness of glory that He shares with His Father would be dumped out on you. Do you get that? This is your only hope for time and eternity of actually living in fellowship with God. It's that the Son to whom eternal glory belongs came to give it to you. you got to receive it at His hand. All right, number five, okay, number five. Understanding Jesus as the only begotten Son of the Father explains the glory of his sacrifice for us. How can the sacrifice of one man provide forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation and eternal life for innumerable men and women? I can't tell you how often I have heard that question out on the street witnessing to people. How can the death of one man, how can you say that one man dying can satisfy the wrath of God for innumerable men and women? How can the suffering of one man for six hours on a cross save a multitude of men and women from an eternity of reaping the rewards of sin in hell? How can that be possible? Well, the answer to that—the biblical answer—is it's only possible because of the worth and the glory of the person who suffered in their place. It's the worth of the person of Jesus Christ as the only begotten, the beloved of the Father, that gave an inexhaustible and eternally worthy—that um, gave an inexhaustible and eternally worthy sacrifice on our behalf. He was a man, yes, but he was a perfect man. He suffered in our place. But it was not his perfection as a man that gave him the worth that was required to die in our place. It was the worth of the person who became that man, which guaranteed that his sufferings under the judgment of God would be sufficient to make atonement for you and me. Uh, You've got to reckon with this. Each one of us are going to die relatively soon you will pass out of this world and you will stand before God for judgment. It is an inevitable, inescapable fact. That's where you're going. When you get there to the judgment seat of God, what is going to be your hope? Were you really good enough to earn God's favor? Just think about it from your own perception of who you are. You know things about you you don't want anyone else in this room to know about you. I know things about me I would be deathly ashamed to share with you, right? No matter how good of a person I may appear on the outside, I know what's going on on the inside, just like you know what's going on on the inside in your own heart. You're going to tell me that you, you have enough confidence in who you are and what you've done to stand before the Lord of glory and declare yourself worthy of his glory. No, it's not going to happen. You know, you get these people out on the street saying, oh yeah, well, I, when I get to heaven, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. No, you won't. No, you won't. Because when you stand before God, you will finally understand exactly what you are. And you will be ashamed of what you are in his presence. You will have no response before him. So what then is our hope? Our hope is that the eternally begotten Son of God took our place under the judgment of the Father. And he died a satisfying death to cover over all the sins that we have committed. and he rose again in victory proving who he is and the worthiness of what he's done this is the problem with jehovah witnesses concept of jesus as i mentioned earlier for them jesus is a created being he's the first and he's the greatest of all god's creatures but he's still simply a creature So when he died on the cross, it was not truly and fully God who suffered in our place. One who has the worth and value of eternal God. It was a creature. A mere creature. Not infinite, not immutable, not bearing glory of self-existence, but a mere finite creature. And you know what that means for their salvation in the Jesus they hold to. It means that the value and the worth of all that that Jesus has done is is of a finite value and one that will come to an end. It cannot be everlasting because it's not of infinite worth. It is temporal and finite and it is as changing as a creature can be changing. Beloved, I want to declare to you that that is not your Jesus. That is not the Jesus revealed to us in the Scriptures. That is not God's gospel for you. He sent forth His only begotten Son, whose worth and value is as infinite and eternal as God the Father Himself a worth that is unchanging and that is undiminished, even when we sink into the depths of death, the worth of Jesus Christ is sufficient to bring us out of it. Even there in death, Jesus Christ remained undefiled and untainted by death, and He rose up again in victory. Will He not bring all who are hoping in Him? Unto that same victory he has achieved. You know, it's an interesting thought. When Jesus entered into death, he was not tainted by death. Death was tainted by him. Death was infected by him. Death became infected by life. So that now for every believer in Jesus Christ, death is not death to us. Death is life. Those who believe in me, though they die, yet they shall live. Pleasing in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. How can it be pleasing to him? Unless it means releasing them from death and bringing them to his presence. You know, I, we're going to end here. But this is what enables you to continue trusting in Jesus Christ even when you are at your rock bottom lowest. It's His grace, it's His redeeming work that you hope in, not your faithfulness to Him. It is the depth and the breadth and the height and the length of His love for you that becomes your confidence in coming to Him. Now you as Christians, you don't live like that all the time, do you? You sin against the Lord, you go sulk away in shame, you think you gotta make up something to God so that you can come back to Him and find acceptance with Him? That is not the gospel. Stop believing that lie. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, has given you an eternally worthy redemption that you are not gonna sin away by your sin. You're not going to undermine the eternally worthy redemption that Jesus Christ has secured for you with His blood. I don't care what you've done as a believer. In fact, I don't care what you've done as an unbeliever. There is nothing that can keep you from coming to Jesus Christ and receiving life from his hand. You cannot outsend the riches of the eternal redemption that Christ has secured for you. All right, now in closing, the last one, number six. It's Jesus as the only begotten Son of God that gives us confidence in the love of God. We know how much God loves us by what he was willing to give for us. And to doubt his love is not merely an innocent sin against him. To doubt his love is to doubt everything about who he is and all of his faithfulness that he's promised to give us. So Jesus Christ, as the only begotten Son of God, gives us this hope, gives us this grace to live and walk in fellowship with God. I pray that you'll come to Him, that you'll receive it in fullness, that you will walk with Him with joy in the reality of His life and light. Would you pray with me? Lord, what a heavy and weighty topic. What a full sermon today. As always, Lord, our hope is not in ourselves, it's not in our ability to comprehend or understand, it's in you. Our hope is in you and in your spirit and in the work that you accomplish in each one of our hearts for your eternal glory. Lord, we look to you to bring that work to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And Lord, until that day, give us grace to be faithful, to live in fellowship with you and to walk in holy love. Focused upon Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here, the benediction, I'm going to read from 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. May you go in the greatness of hope and the peace that the truth gives to us. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Dismissed.